Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made and rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Got a bit of a frog in my throat, but that's all right. All right. How are you today? I'm doing all right. My second episode of Dark Side Drive aired uh, just recently, and if you'd like to check it out, uh, you can download it on www.darksidedrive.com. It's a Blind Taste Test is the name of my second episode this season. First episode I did earlier this season was called Captain Courageous. Yeah, it's been really cool writing for this horror anthology radio show. Very old school. Yeah, has anything from what we've been covering in the podcast or even just the films you might have been exposed to influenced your writing? I think it's been maybe not so much a direct influence as it has been helpful to kind of be immersed in the horror genre for the past year. Sure. Uh, it's made it sort of easier to be in that mindset when writing, I guess. Okay. Well, what are we watching today? Today, we are watching 1934's Black Moon, starring Faye Ray. Okay. And maybe it is worth noting that neither on the day we are recording, nor the day that this will be released, it will not be a new moon, so it will not actually be a black moon in the sky. Right. Although, I have a sinking feeling that the black in the title doesn't necessarily refer to um, astrological occurrences. Yeah, given the synopsis I could find of the book uh, that this movie is based off of, still called Black Moon, it was published in 1933 by Clements Ripley. It's not about the lunar moon at all, you could say, but uh, it is what it is, I guess. Ah. Hmm. So let me tell you a bit about this book, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the author. Okay. So in the novel Black Moon, we have our main guy, Stephen Lane, who is wealthy, athletic, handsome, and he's interested in marrying an Amalia Perez. So they were getting pretty cuddly in the States, but then she went on cold and went back to her native land of Haiti. Okay. He's very confused because, you know, they were pretty close to getting married, so he follows her there. Malia's uncle, Dr. Perez, owns the island? I don't think that's how that works. At the very least, owns a plantation on the island. So you can kind of see where this book goes with Black Moon, and um, apparently it's very racist. People have described it as condescending to uh, some black characters, like the servant named Lunch. Um, I think it's fine to say just straight-up racist, Sure. whatever. So Amalia is still acting very disinterested to Lane. There is a, an American girl who kind of shows up later, so you can kind of see that Lane and the American girl are going to you know, fall in love, just given the tropes of the genre. Throughout the book's plot, there's unrest with the natives, Mm -hmm. uh, rituals going on, presumably voodoo. Yeah. Because it's Haiti. Um, Mysterious disappearances. The tie-in with the rituals is that Amalia turns out to be a high priestess of the local voodoo cult. Kind of the neat twist of the novel is Amalia, despite this twist of being a high priestess, is not 
completely the villain as her uncle. He's been covering up some murder and other wrongdoings in the name of uh, preserving the family name. Okay. So he is kind of taken as more of the villain than Amalia herself. Um, but it's definitely, you know, that pulp fiction thriller uh, from this time period. Yeah, for sure. Sort of playing on the same exoticness of Haiti that, like, White Zombie was. Yeah. And the relatively recent publication of The Magic Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So born in 1892... Clements Ripley was the grandson of U.S. Civil War officer William Y.W. Ripley. No relationships to Robert Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay. For the record. His grandfather had received a Medal of Honor in the uh, Battle of Malvern Hill, and Clements would continue this military service in history after graduating from Yale in 1916 when he joined the war effort in World War I. Uh, he was first commissioned as a second lieutenant and would rise to the rank of captain. While stationed at Camp Jackson, he'd meet and fall in love with Catherine Caddy Ball. No relation to Lucille Ball, by the way. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and they would marry in 1919. Clements would write a total of 26 short stories five screenplays, and seven novels. Okay. But this relatively prolific career started when he sold his first story in the early 1920s, back when he and Caddy uh, were starting a peach farm in North Carolina. This actually wasn't Clements's first time dealing with uh, publishing, as he had worked as an editor of the Yale humor magazine called The Yale Record, alongside writer of King Kong and The Most Dangerous Game, James Ashmore Creelman. Caddy had actually been in print since 1914. Uh, she'd actively write her own work and help Clements with his. Uh, and in letters between Clements and publishers and people asking for uh, copies of his work, he would note that he and his wife would work relatively 50-50 on a lot of his stories, adding that she was a better natural writer than him. Right. And he'd even advocate for higher salaries because people were getting the work of two people instead of one. Yet she's not, like, credited as a co-author on anything. Yeah, there's actually a whole thing with that. Um, in 1932, they were working on this collaborative agreement where they were trying to get it so that she would be co-author to his works, and publishers were like, resistant to that idea, using the argument that the Clements Ripley name has more clout to it. Sure. And the idea of manuscripts with two names not getting sold as often as manuscripts with a single name. Mm -hmm. um, but they managed to get Caddy a third of the profit direct to her and in her name, even though it was still that difficult fight of two names on a manuscript. In 1927, they would give up the peach farm because it wasn't very successful. <laughs> and Clements would sell his first novel, Dust and Sun to Adventure. The bulk of his writing would be done after this period, especially with the short stories. Uh, but this is also when his relationship with Hollywood would begin, as Dust and Sun was adapted into the 1930 film A Devil with Women, starring Humphrey Bogart. Oh, Oh, that's a really early Humphrey Bogart role, then. Mm-hmm. 
kind of continuing this relationship with Hollywood, uh, around 1933, his short story, originally published in the Cosmopolitan magazine, A Lady Comes to Town, was purchased for MGM for $30,000, which is the highest amount a movie studio has paid for a short story. His third novel, Black Moon, was published in 1933 and was adapted to screen the following year. And this relationship with Hollywood would continue throughout the 40s, not to any particular studio. Mm-hmm. He would make the jump to screenwriting in 1938 with the film Love, Honor, and Behave and the film Jezebel starring Betty Davis. Okay, cool. Clements would see his son, William Y.W. Ripley, continue his family's military service in World War II, uh, and his son would go on to be a notable South Carolina journalist and historian. Okay. Clements himself would pass away in 1954 at age 61, and he's buried in Charleston, South Carolina. All right. Yeah. So we're sort of coming in near the beginning of his relationship with Hollywood, I guess. I guess he's had two movies made of his stuff already. Yeah. So that makes him kind of a valuable property in Hollywood. (laughs) You know how it is? So, speaking of Hollywood, on June 13th, 1934, an amendment in the Motion Picture Production Code saw the establishment of the Production Code Administration, requiring all films released on or after July 1st of that year to obtain a certificate of approval before being released. Mm-hmm. Black Moon was released on June 15th, just two days after this amendment uh, happened. So it just squeaks in as our last pre-code Hollywood horror movie. Nice. Yeah, since the amendment, you know, wouldn't take effect until July 1st. So this movie comes to us courtesy of Columbia Pictures. The last film we saw from them was uh, Night of Terror. (laughs) Uh, which was uh, a B picture. Black Moon was higher budgeted, uh, coming off of a recent change of fortune for the studio. Two events in 1934 changed Harry Cohn's ill-regarded studio forever. The first was the February 22nd release of Frank Capra's film It Happened One Night, which grossed $2.5 million dollars and would go on to be the first of only three films to win all of the Big Five Academy Awards. That is, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Writing. Um, So that really put Columbia Pictures on the map, as it were, in a way they hadn't been before. Future releases from Frank Capra continued that trend. The second thing that really bolstered Columbia's fortunes was the release of the comedy short Women Haters on May 5th, which was the first short for Columbia by The Three Stooges. You know, Larry, Curly, and Moe. Yeah. uh, Who would go on to star in 97 shorts for Columbia from 1934 to 1946. The huge success of The Stooges finally gave Cohn a bargaining chip with exhibitors to take Columbia features if they wanted Stooge shorts. All of this meant that Columbia could spend a bit more money on Black Moon than they had on Night of Terror a year before. (laughs) 
The film's director is Roy William Neal. Neal was born in 1887 on a ship off the coast of Ireland that his father was captaining. He was a U.S. citizen, however, and lived and worked in the United States. He began directing films in 1917, directing 40 silent films before switching to sound. He remained a prolific director in the sound era, but even though his bread and butter was B-movies, he always directed his films with a meticulous eye to light and shadow, uh, and was considered to be quite stylish as a result. That bodes well. Mm-hmm. The male lead in the cast uh, is an actor named Jack Holt, who was 46 when he appeared in Black Moon. As a young man, Holt had worked a variety of odd jobs during a six-year stay in Alaska, where frostbite led to chronic foot pain that prevented his service in World War I. He got his start in films as a stuntman, specializing in horse riding stunts for westerns. That's funny that, like, he isn't well enough to go to war, but he's well enough to do stunts. Well, I suppose you don't have to be on your feet that much if you're on a horse. That's fair. Holt's pencil mustache, square jaw, and rugged personality eventually won him attention from casting directors, and he ended up becoming Columbia's go-to leading man in the 1920s, Uh, appearing on a regular basis in their films, and becoming kind of synonymous with the square-jawed hero in the public consciousness. However, uh, by the early 30s, he was being overshadowed by younger actors, and Columbia moved him to leading B-pictures instead of their major releases, uh, which is sort of where we find him here. Mm. The big star of this movie, really, was Faye Ray, who was now a year out from her biggest hit, King Kong. She'd appeared in 12 films since King Kong, uh, including Viva Via, which was one of the biggest box office hits of 1934. Ray is joined in this film by Dorothy Burgess, who had been acting since she was in her teens on Broadway. As her star rose on stage, her dark hair and complexion saw her typecast as playing uh, Latina women, although her off-stage appearance was much more typically white. She is, in this film, uh, again appearing in a Latina role as Juanita Perez. Uh, She began acting on film in 1928, uh, continuing to play sexy, seductress Latina characters. Her career was on the way up, but in 1932, she was involved in an automobile accident which killed one person and injured two others. She was charged with manslaughter, but suffered from shock and was placed in a sanatorium for a period. Ultimately, she paid out about $12,000 in damages to the victims and their families. She continued acting afterwards, obviously she's in this movie, but would never rise to the status of an A-picture leading lady due to continued ill psychological health after this. Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, you, you, you know, gave us a brief synopsis of the novel, which has sort of let us know a little bit of what we should be expecting in this film. Yeah. That the black in the title is maybe less than metaphorical. With the pretty thankless job of playing the character of Lunch, who you mentioned, who's basically a black servant type, there's actor Clarence 
Muse. He was born in 1889 and received a degree in international law in 1911. In the 1920s, he was acting on stage in Harlem before moving to Hollywood and starring in Hearts in Dixie in 1929, which was the first all-black studio picture. Cool. In addition to acting, Muse composed notable hit songs in the early 30s, like Sleepy Time Down South, and became the first African-American Broadway director later in the 1940s. Wow. So, yeah, Muse is considered a pretty significant figure in the history of African-American entertainers, specifically in fighting to try and get better roles for black actors. Um, He's playing a pretty typical part for black actors of the time in this movie, um, but he has this more significant legacy. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you gotta take real bad roles in order to, like, eat that month, you know? Yeah. Appearing uh, with Muse in this film is actress Madame Solti Wan, who was born Nellie Crawford in 1873 to freed slaves in Louisville, Kentucky. Her mother was a laundress who worked for Louisville stage actresses, and as she delivered the laundry, uh, the young girl decided that she wanted to grow up and become an actress. As a young woman, she moved to Cincinnati and began acting under the name Creole Nell. After moving to California, she would break into film by appearing in Birth of a Nation and Intolerance for D.W. Griffith in 1915 and 16. Hmm. Throughout the teens and 20s, she would act in dozens of films, typically as a mammy-type character, under the name Madame Salty One. She successfully jumped to sound films in the 1930s, acting consistently, though usually in minor roles. For example, she plays one of the native women in King Kong. She would continue acting through the 30s and 40s. She would actually be honored by a banquet in 1953 that was sort of thrown by Hollywood in her honor due to her long career. And she actually ended up getting a lot better parts in the 1950s, sort of as the civil rights movement was starting to pick up some steam. Uh, But she would pass away in 1959 at age 85. She was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1986, And it's worth mentioning that Clarence Muse was actually the first inductee in 1973. Mm, That's really cool. Yeah. So Black Moon was released June 15th, 1934. Uh, As I said, the final pre-code horror film out of Hollywood. The film didn't make much of a splash at the time. Uh, Reviews for it single out Clarence Muse and Jack Holt for praise, uh, but criticized... The Gruesome Story and Violence. Today, it's kind of a hard film to track down. Um, It's available as a print-on-demand DVD from Columbia Home Video, but it's not streaming anywhere right now. So, watch along if you can, I guess? Yeah. If you would still like to check out our website, even though we don't have the film available up there, you can check out screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. If you do happen to find a copy, uh, watch along and we will see you on the other side. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and then we'll be right back talking about Black Moon. From 1934. 
welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Black Moon from 1934. What did you think, Ben? I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I was worried about how, like, racist or, like, offensive this movie would be, and, um, I, I think you could argue it's quite a lot, but I feel like this movie's greatest problem for me as a viewer was mostly just that it was soups boring. Yeah, I think it was relying a lot on the intrigue slash fear that someone might have around voodoo mysticism and or black people. Uh, Which to... are one and the same in this movie's well, eyes. It's, yes, definitely in this movie's eyes in general, not so much. But without that drawing you in, the only thing it really had for mood setting was the lighting and drumming. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing um, supernatural in it either. This isn't a white zombie type movie where voodoo is real. It's just a movie where voodoo is a practice. Yeah. To give sort of a brief plot summary, in the movie version, Stephen Lane and Juanita Perez, I don't know why her first name was changed, are married instead of being engaged. And significantly, they've been married long enough to have like a four or five year old daughter as well. Um, Steven's fairly wealthy, but Juanita has some sort of psychological condition that she's come down with where she's gotten obsessed with drumming and memories of her native land, which is the island of San Christopher, where she originally came from, where she lived with the only other two white people on the whole island, her uncle, who owns a plantation, and the overseer of that plantation. So a psychologist recommends to Stephen that the best way for Juanita to overcome these obsessions is to go on a trip home and kind of face whatever she's afraid of head on, and then she'll be fine. Which is not bad advice. Yeah, it's not great advice either. Yeah, it should also be said that this island is like off the coast of Haiti. Yes, uh, and fictional. And fictional, but yeah. So... Stephen arranges for Juanita and their daughter to go to the island. He's not accompanying them because he's a busy business person of some sort. Um, but he does arrange for his secretary, Gail, to go along with them. And the kid's nanny. Yes. So um, his wife, uh, Juanita, is Dorothy Burgess. The secretary, Gail, is Faye Ray. And Gail wants to resign from being his secretary, basically because she tells him in, you know, not so many words that she's fallen in love with him and can't really do her job anymore, which makes the whole fact that she's been assigned to go take care of his wife and daughter on like a strange island in the Caribbean without him around sort of all the more weird and upsetting to her. Before they can go to the island, the overseer of the plantation shows up to tell Juanita not to go. We don't really know why, because he's soon killed. They go to the island, and Juanita's uncle is immediately upset that they're there. Dr. Perez uh, thinks she should immediately just go home. It's too dangerous for her, for reasons we don't know. But all the natives seem super excited that she's back. Uh, they're throwing parades for her in the street and stuff. We don't really know what's going on. Gail has a bad feeling about this. There's a native woman, Ruva, who was Juanita's nanny when she was a girl, who's sort of, I guess, having, like, nanny jealousy fights with their daughter's, like, white nanny, Anna. And there's just a lot of weird stuff happening. 
So Gale decides to tell the telegraph operator to wire to the states and get Stephen to come out here. Soon afterwards, the telegraph operator is found dead. Stephen arrives. Everybody still is sort of not explaining what <laughs> is going on or, or, or what the danger is. It's just a lot of vague sort of, you should leave the island because it's dangerous, and the only explanation we really get is, well, the natives are restless, something, something voodoo. Anna's found dead, dropped into a lava pit, <laughs> yeah. um, which really, like, they should have just gone right then and there, but they waff about for a few more scenes of, uh, you know, different mixtures of the five characters in this movie meeting each other in rooms to tell each other that the island is dangerous before finally deciding to leave. Stephen got here on a schooner that was piloted by Lunch, McLaren, who is from Georgia, but runs this schooner between here and Haiti, and one of his girlfriends is an island native, and this is the character played by Clarence Muse. Unfortunately, the natives have sort of gone off with his schooner, so they're all trapped here. At this point, you'd think they'd all be really upset, but Dr. Perez has oddly changed his tune and is now telling Stephen, like, don't worry about it. We'll just chill out here forever. It's fine. When, like, two scenes ago, he was telling them they all had to leave. A bunch more time is wasted with nothing happening until finally lunch comes to Stephen and says, like, hey, they're going to sacrifice my girlfriend in, like, a voodoo sacrifice. And they're like, all right, well, let's go check this out. So Lunch and Steven go to the voodoo sacrifice. This is where we discover that Juanita's actually like a high priestess of voodooism. She's all in the gear and the outfit, and they're going to sacrifice this woman. Just as the high priest is about to machete this woman, Steven pulls out a gun and just shoots the high priest. And then him and Lunch run away, so Juanita just picks up the machete and sacrifices the woman, so... Good job, Stephen. You achieved nothing. We are now 40 minutes into a 70-minute movie <laughs> when this happens. Stephen goes back to uh, Dr. Perez's house, and he finally kind of explains the plot, uh, which is that Juanita's parents died when she was really young, so he took care of her. They had this black nanny, Ruva, who we'd met by this point, who basically, like, brought Juanita up in the ways of being black, which in this movie means voodooism. And she was sort of raised in these beliefs, and Dr. Prez didn't really like that, so he sent her, when she was 15, off to school in Haiti and tried to, like, re-educate her, and then she went off to the States and got married. But this whole time, she's really just wanted to come back to the island and resume being voodoo priestess of this island. And Stephen very rightly says, like, hey, why didn't you explain this to me earlier? And there's really no answer to that question. <laughs> At this point, the natives are understandably upset that their high priest has been shot. He's fine, though. Don't worry about it. They have to carry him around on a litter, but, like, he's gonna make it. And they storm the mansion on Moss, which, like, apparently there's been multiple native uprisings in the past. And, like, at a certain point, especially if you were, like, down to just two white people in one big mansion. Like, I think at a certain point you just cut your losses. But according to Dr. Perez, Perez has never run away. So, okay. They storm the mansion. There's sort of a siege thing going on. Uh, but the natives manage to basically smoke 
our heroes out, and so our heroes are captured. But then they escape anyways, because there's a lot of stuff in this movie where we're just biding time. They escape, but the daughter is still at the house. Um, Nancy. That's her name. Nancy's still at the house because, you know, she's Juanita's daughter. However, after Stephen and Gail and Dr. Perez and Lunch have escaped, the natives are upset that they didn't get to sacrifice any white people. They basically wanted to kill all of these white people and just have Juanita and her daughter live on this island. So because they've all escaped, they're really upset, so they've decided they're going to sacrifice Nancy instead. This upsets Juanita, so she finally has a moment where she realizes that, like, maybe this isn't great, but just kind of goes along with it anyways. Yeah, she seems like she's in shock or something. Yeah, I mean, everyone... This movie thinks that everyone who practices voodoo is a zombie. Like, they never use the word zombie in the movie, but all of the natives and anyone else who's practicing voodoo just kind of walk around in this movie like they're in a trance. Yeah. So, they go to sacrifice the girl. Stephen heroically shows up. It's Juanita herself who's going to machete her own daughter. So, Stephen's just put into the position where he has to shoot her. Then, he just is able to walk right into the ceremony, grab his daughter, and walk out, and none of the natives do anything to attack him or stop him or anything. Well, because they're in a trance. Sure. Stephen, Gale, and Lunch all leave on the boat. Stephen and Gale are now kind of free to get together. And Perez stays behind on the island, buries his daughter there, and all the natives show up for a funeral and aren't, like, still trying to kill him for some reason, even though it was made clear many times that they want him dead. So, the end. You did say his daughter? Niece. His niece. He has a funeral for his niece. Yeah, it's... This movie... It's so meandering. Mm -hmm. That's why I think that, like, it was relying on the idea of being in, like, fictional Haiti as, like, drawing the people in. Because otherwise there's nothing that's actually drawing us in. It feels like a movie where the script is trying to cover up for, like, a lack of money. Okay. Like, it feels like they don't have... It feels like a few things. It feels to me like they don't have a lot of money to show a lot of stuff happening. Because a lot of stuff happens off screen. Yeah, like, part of the reason why nothing seems to happen for most of the movie is we're staying in the mansion and hearing about how the natives are doing these practices. Or we hear the drums. And we don't see anything. Yeah, like, Juanita really should be the central character of this movie. She's the one with the backstory on the island. She's the one who has the central conflict of being drawn back there, but, like, does she stay with her husband and wife, or does she go back to this island lifestyle, or whatever? But her whole storyline basically happens off-screen. She leaves the mansion and goes and does stuff, and then she'll come back and we'll hear about it. So there seems to be some, like, money-saving going on there, and I feel like a good writer maybe could have made something out of the sort of desperate, maddening feeling of being under siege... Mm -hmm. But this movie doesn't really accomplish that. Um, and like you said, instead it just tries to rely on this intrigue. The only few parts where I was, like, slightly interested was um, the lighting in this movie mm -hmm. is very well done. And then we also got to see Juanita be a little sassy or have some agency or do something. Like, she has these lines where she 
calls Dr. Prez out on his mistreatment of slaves mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. And so I, I did appreciate those few moments, especially because, like, the last movie that we watched that had a female, I guess, female lead, but, like, the female villain was Supernatural. Right. And it wasn't all that good. Whereas here, yeah, we got to see a bit more of that. Yeah, I think if Juanita had been more of a focus... It would have been way better. This would have been a better movie. You know, you talk about agency. She gets agency. None of the natives she's speaking for get agency. No. Like... They are this amorphous, (laughs) uh, threatening force, and that's all. Like, they don't even get lines. Yeah, like, I think in a way... This'll be, this is kind of ironic, but I think the racism actually hurts the story. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, the natives are, like you said, this kind of mindless mob. They have no personality. They just sort of go and do what the story wants them to do at that moment. There's very little consistency of motivation or characterization. Uh, like I said, they go from wanting to kill Perez to showing up at his house for a funeral. You know, there's nothing to them. I feel like if we had known what their goals were, if they had actually been characters, they could have actually been scarier as a menace. It almost defeats the purpose of them being the central threat of the movie because them just being mindless zombies almost takes all the teeth out of it, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, the fear in this movie itself is quite obviously racist. At its core, it's the fear of black people. Yeah. Both their uprising uh, against this plantation owner, um, their influence on white women. Mm-hmm. Or white passing women. Yeah, that's fair. White passing women. And just the danger that black freedom is to white people and white supremacy. Yeah, it's like... And like that fear, like, you're totally right that the movie's own racism is like showing these we'll say mob, mm-hmm. as just an ongoing threat without any actual, like, motive or intention behind it or characterization hurts it because, like, it just makes it, like, this, like, bland fear of, like, black people. Yeah, it's it's something where, you know, watching the movie, I, I found myself questioning, like, is this even horror? Because it wasn't scary. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't identify anything in the movie that was supposed to be scary. You know, it was shot kind of like a horror movie and it had other aspects that that seemed like maybe it was horror, like the focus is on these survivors of a harrowing event. There's kind of um, these moments of horror, like the man who hangs himself or the nurse getting dumped in the lava pit, or there's a subplot about how the kid accidentally drinks some poison at one point, you know, that feel like horror, but they're so few and far between, you know, they didn't feel like they were adding up to anything. And I I came to the realization the reason why it wasn't working for me as horror is because what this movie is afraid of is something I'm not afraid of. Yeah. Um, It's, like you said, the central fear is just black uprising. And if your soup's racist and, like, believe in the ideals of white supremacy, maybe you'd find this movie scary. But as someone who doesn't, it feels like the movie would have been better if the villains had some characterization, you know? Yeah. You need, to, you need to do more than just have the villains be the blacks and have the reason why they're villainous be because they're black if you want this movie to appeal to anyone other than racists. Yeah, and that's why it's weird when... Weird in terms of the motives of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um when Juanita calls Dr. Prez out on his mistreatment of slaves 
and like it's very clear that Dr. Perez is not it's not like there's a good slave owner but he is not he's just a bad person, person. yeah yeah he's a shitty dude and when she calls him out on that you're kind of like yeah yeah he is an asshole to the natives of the island yeah he is like oppressive te- oppressive and terrible but I, I guess you're supposed to find those moments um, unsettling rather than, yeah, you tell him, Juanita. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that if they didn't want to give any black people any lines, I mean, Clarence Muse gets lines, but he's one of the good ones. You know Ugh. what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, but if they didn't want to give the natives any motivation, you know, they have Juanita there to kind of be their spokesperson. But even she doesn't get enough because her story is supposed to be this tragedy of, like, being caught between two worlds. But even then, like, the story doesn't focus on her. The story's focused on her husband and his secretary, Gail. Like, ultimately, it's like this movie is 70 minutes of utter nonsense in response to the hypothetical question, So, Mrs. Lane, how did you and your husband meet? And why do you have a Latina daughter if you're both white? Like, yeah. like, that's what this story's about. This is how I met your stepmother. <laughs> you talked about how, like, the only thing this movie has going for it for a long time is, like, this intrigue and mystery, right? Like, that's how the movie's trying to generate suspense. Yeah. And, like, I said to you while we were watching it that it was a movie that seemed aggressively committed to nothing happening. Yeah. Because it's just filled with these scenes that bide for time. You know, like, like one of the ones that really stood out for me was when they want to sacrifice Nancy. Ruva comes in and takes Nancy from Juanita and then goes downstairs. And then Juanita comes downstairs and takes Nancy away from Ruva and then they just both go to the sacrifice. Like, it's just five minutes of just dead air and nothing really significant happening. And what's even more frustrating is that because we're only told what's actually going on at the 50-minute mark, it's really hard to engage with the movie up to that point. Like, it's obvious that what they're trying to do is an attempt at mystery, but there's no clues, Mm -hmm. and it's expanded out over such a long time span of the movie's running time that it just becomes frustrating. Like, Like, King Kong has a mystery at the start, right? What's this mysterious island? What's King Kong? What are we going to find there? But then you go to the island and you find those things. Yeah, in like 15 minutes. Yeah. Whereas this movie, it tries to do a slow burn, but it really just peters out. And it's because like the film's insistence on not giving you any answers ends up actually working against its attempts at tension and suspense, because we don't know what the stakes are. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to tell you something dangerous is happening, but without any context, why do I care? Yeah. And we don't even get a Favre scream. (laughs) You know, why have Favre in your movie, in your horror movie specifically, and not have her scream? Yeah, no kidding, huh? I didn't even think about that. The other thing is, like, maybe if Juanita was on screen long enough for us to actually care about her, the story would have more impact. But as it is, like, the characters in this movie are so thinly drawn that the entire film just kind of passes you by as this series of empty images without any real significance. Yeah. I think the actors bring a bit to the role. Like, Lane 
does a fairly good job, uh, especially when he's um, in the scenes with Nancy and being a father. Mm-hmm. Gail, I mean, Faye Ray always brings her A-game. Yeah, she's great. Faye uh, Ray's just always good. Yeah, and, like, Juanita, I think she was trying, uh, like, the actress, I mean, was trying, but, like, it's tough when a script is, like, actively not giving you the lines that you would need to really bring meat. Yeah, for sure. I do think, like, it's a good cast. Um, You mentioned already that the lighting is good. Yeah. And I think, like, it's a well-shot movie. I think it's well-directed. The fact that it's well-shot and well-directed and well-performed is sort of enough to accidentally trick you when you're watching it occasionally into thinking it's a real movie and not (laughs) just, like, B-movie schlock, right? Yeah. Because when we look at movies like Night of Terror or House of Mystery, you know, they're so boringly and incompetently made that you know you're like oh yeah this is just some garbage but this movie like it it looks like it could be an a movie you know if you just saw one scene of it in isolation right yeah it's the fact that when you watch the whole thing and you realize that it's a movie that never leaves this one mansion and is just the same four people talking to each other over and over you're like oh no this is actually a cheap movie they're just making it well enough that it kind of looks like an A picture. Yeah. Do we want to move on to ranking? Yeah, I think so. Um, we're we're thinking that this movie's eligible enough for ranking? I think it is eligible to be considered a horror movie. We just don't find it scary. Frankly, audience, if you were to watch this movie and you were to go, this doesn't feel like horror, I would sympathize with you. And I think it just comes down to the fact that it's based around a fear that most viewers wouldn't find relevant yeah. anymore. Yeah, I think um, it's a horror movie set in its time. Like, not that racism is gone today, but something that, at its core, the fear is racism. Like, because, it's definitely from the 30s, you know? Because there's nothing more to it. Like, this is the most basic-ass racism, yeah. right? Like, we've had other horror movies that had sort of racist fears at their core, right? Probably, I'm guessing the highest ranked one right now is Dracula? Yeah. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, those other horror films have something going for them. Like, Dracula's a foreigner, but he's got some personality. You know what I mean? And there's there's other things going on there too, right? It's not just racism, there's also a fear of sexuality and a fear of unchristian forces and 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 insanity and all these other things. There's some layers there so that, you know, there's a lot of movies that don't age well, <laughs> um, but occasionally they stick around because there's other things that we latch onto in them. Older stuff like uh, Tarzan and... Gone with the Wind and, and all these kinds of things where you go back and you watch them and you go like, ooh, this is not great. But they, they persist because there's something in there still, aside from the racism, that we find appealing. And the problem with this movie is there isn't that other thing. There is nothing else here other than black people are scary. And it really could have done something. Right. Like, you, you said um, about the story of being torn between two worlds, and mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting, um, 
if it if the movie itself was interested in looking at biracial people. Right. And like maybe if, if that was the case, have Nancy be older and see her dealing with the fact that her mom's Latina and her dad's white, like and feeling pulled in the same directions. Yeah, there's there's interesting characters in this movie if this movie wanted to be told from their point of view, right? Like if Juanita was the main character. There there are ways to make this interesting. I mean, you know, we've already seen Haitian voodoo in an interesting movie. You know, I mean, White Zombie was a cheap ripoff of Dracula, but it was still better than this. <laughs> the only thing I'll give in this movie's favor is that because of the two sort of sacrifice scenes that we get, which are the scenes that are like the only two scenes that take place outside the mansion and have more than four people on screen in them, those two scenes give us a really big sort of wide view of alleged voodoo practitioner in a way that White Zombie didn't, because White Zombie was about a white man who had stolen that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So at least there's there's that in this movie that makes it like, oh, okay, that's something we haven't really seen before. But that's not enough to recommend the movie. No. So where are you thinking for ranking? Well, um, we, we kind of joke sometimes about the mummy being, like, at the halfway point of yeah. the list. Yeah. Both in terms of, like, numbers, but also, like... If you're looking for the most bland horror movie, The Mummy is it. Yeah, if you're better than The Mummy, you're a good movie, and if you're worse than The Mummy, you're a bad movie. So Black Moon definitely goes below The Mummy. Uh-huh. Because, like, this movie is bland if you don't find black people scary. Yeah. Like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's competently shot, and it's got some almost interesting ideas if you're willing to dig for them. And it has scenes that are a little... I'll say frightening, like when Nancy drinks the poison, mm -hmm. uh, and like you have dread because you know, like you've seen the poison put in, and you don't want her to drink it. Or when they're locked in the tower and like it's filling up with smoke. That reminded me of the sealed room. I was thinking second to last. Okay. I felt like it was better than House of Mystery because we we talked about how incompetently shot House of Mystery was, how House of Mystery was a movie from 1934 that looked like it was from 1930, right? Yeah, it was just a bad, bad movie. Um, you know, and this at least is competently made, but the flip side was that uh, this movie wasn't, I barely recognized this movie as horror. It almost, at some points, I was thinking, is this action-adventure, but not enough happens. And then I was thinking, is it just a straight drama, but too much happens? So... And, and then it was like, oh, it is horror, but it's just the fear is black people, so you're not afraid of anything. And the fact is that it was so, as a horror movie, you know, not as a movie, but as a horror movie, so uninteresting and so one note in what it was, so lazy in its attempt to frighten an audience that it, for me, ended up going, you know, below all those Melia's shorts, below even Wolf Blood. Because Wolfblood at least, you know, Wolfblood had some racism in it, but Wolfblood wasn't racism, the movie, like this movie kind of is. So my opinion of it just kept getting lower and lower, and I acknowledge that it's a well-made film, but it's a well-made film with nothing worthwhile to say, so it kind of, that's how I ended up at second to last. Okay. So the last Columbia picture we saw was Night of, Night Terror. of Terror at 43... What do you think compared to this? Like, Night of Terror did fairly well because they turned the 
thing on its head. Like, Bela Lugosi was a red herring. It yeah. was actually, like, the hero at the end of the day. I think um, Black Moon is better shot and better acted and potentially even mildly better written than Night of Terror. But it's it's really tough because, like, Night of Terror has everyone suspecting Bella because he's a foreigner, and then it turns out it's just the rich, pompous heir who's the villain. And in this movie, it's just black people. Like, even Dr. Prez, who's, like, a shitty dude, isn't the villain of this story, yeah, right? Yeah, he doesn't even get punished. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it's really tough because I... Yeah, Black Moon definitely is a better-made movie, but it's it's tough for me to put it higher on the list because of how kind of despicable it is. Yeah. When we're unsure, we always have to think, how effective was this at horror? In that it, case, like, I think of the particular scenes that I kind of highlighted, like, when they're suffocating in the smoke, when Nancy has drunk poison, mm-hmm. um... And then, like, the ending scene when, like, they're finally going away, like, that really reminded me of Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. Um, I'd also point out, like, when they find the um, hanged wireless operator and when they find uh, Anna face first in a puddle of lava. <laughs> puddle? Um, yeah, so for me, like, for me, I feel like I would be willing to put this above the sealed room because of that, like, those moments of, Seeing death and seeing people's reactions to death. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should go above The Unknown at number 37. The Unknown was Lon Chaney Sr. as the circus guy? Yeah, with no arms. Yeah. Or he pretends to have no arms, and then he cuts his own arms off to be with this woman who thinks he has no arms, and then it turns out while he was doing that, she got married. falling in love. Yeah, Yeah, falling in love. So the reason why I don't think it should go above The Unknown is because... You know, The Unknown ranked pretty low on the list because it's not quite horror, right? Mm-hmm. Like, genre-wise, it's it's just kind of a really weird drama, but it has moments of horror in it. And I remember the next week or so we watched Al Round and you were like, oh, no, wait, The Unknown is horror. <laughs> um, this film, I think, also could be classified as just a weird drama if nothing in it is particularly frightening or disturbing to you. What I think is worthwhile is that what makes the unknown disturbing, what provides the horror in the unknown, is the way that it examines this really messed up psychology of this guy, right? And the messed up psychology of the woman he loves, right? Because her whole deal is like she won't let a man touch her. And there's there's psychologically interesting things happening in that movie that um, Black Moon isn't really interested in. Yeah. It, like, isn't interested in exploring at all. Cool. So this going below the unknown, but above the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I'm I'm fine with that. I I did want to ask you quickly before we finalized a spot. Do you think it is indeed better than the Avenging Conscience as horror? That's a really good point because in the Avenging Conscience, we I mean, there's that one standout scene where it's very much like the Telltale Heart, but we also see some like. I, I always describe it as, like, body horror, but it's, like, these close-ups of, like, ants and wasps, like, attacking each other. Yeah, I don't think it's so much body horror as it's something that makes your body feel horror. Yeah. Um, just because you really don't like bugs. Um, but There's we al- also see, like, someone jump off a cliff and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, it really commits to that stuff. There's, there's, like, the shot of, like, the ghost coming out of the wall and stuff. So, yeah, that's a good point. 
I would be willing to put Avenging Conscience above Black Moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting to think about La Llorona compared yeah, to this because La sure. Llorona's horror, or yeah, its fear came from the idea of these uh, indigenous people passing on this curse, but enacting that curse on this family, this yeah, bloodline. For sure. They're, they're both movies that are about a colonialist family being afraid of retribution upon them, right? Yeah. And what's interesting about that is I don't think you can really be afraid of indigenous people or African Americans, you know, the oppressed masses, the slaves turning against you unless you have some awareness that what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. You know, like if in your heart you think that they're better off as slaves and that they love being slaves and that that's the natural order of things, I think an uprising would be completely surprising to you. You wouldn't see it coming. So to have that be a fear, that fear has to be coming from a place inside you, like a place of guilt, where you're somewhat aware that what you're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really like the idea of comparing this film against La Llorona. I do think this is a better made movie, but that sort of judging Hollywood versus Mexico, which is like an unfair judgment in terms of what was capable. Yeah, I think thinking about the main character's awareness and also their arrogance. Mm -hmm. La Llorona, their main family are like, what? A curse? Like, what are you talking about? I had no idea Mm -hmm. that the indigenous servants we had were enacting this. In Black Moon, Dr. Perez says specifically, there has been six uprising in the past, and I don't run away. Yeah, like, I could have left at any time. And by the end of the movie, he's the only white dude on that island. And he stays. Yeah, he's going to get killed. Rightly so, I will just add. So, (laughs) in... In face of that, I feel like La Llorona should go below Black Moon because while it might be more horrific with that surprise, these people you've known all along are doing this, uh, it's a little more horrific to me seeing these people like laugh in the face of the horrors that they enact. Um, okay, I will say the thing about La Llorona that was interesting was... Because the people who were getting the curse act upon them were innocent, you know, had never really done anything wrong, the movie was seeming to say something interesting about, you know, how... People of today should not be burdened with the horrors of the past. Or should they? Like, asking the question, like, how culpable is, like, a modern-day descendant of colonialists for the actions of their colonialist ancestors? Whereas, like... Because Black Moon, it's like, no, he literally still owns a plantation. Like, he's 100% culpable. So I, I think La Llorona is more interesting. The, the question is, is like, is Dr. Perez the guy who's under threat? Or is it Juanita? Or is it, like, Steven because his wife and, and child's being taken away? Like, who's the, who's the person who is afraid in the context of the movie? Who's the horror being enacted upon? Gail and Nancy. Yeah, I guess they're, like, the most straight innocents, right? Yeah. Gail kind of handles herself pretty well. She, Like you said, she doesn't <laughs> even scream. Yeah. Gosh, it's that's tough for me, Sarah. You're thinking Black Moon goes above. 
Yeah, and you could even make the case of, like, the fact that the lighting helps with the creating the mood of horror. La Llorona was pretty straight on. It They both meander. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose you could say that La Llorona has special effects. Cause yes. Because it has the ghost scenes. You're right that they both meander. I had forgotten that about La Llorona. I think Black Moon... Black Moon at least stays on topic. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes forever to talk about what it wants to talk about, but it at least stays on topic while it's getting there. So, with much chagrin, <laughs> I can agree to Black Moon going there, below the golem, above La Llorona. Cool. So that's number 41 on the list. Black Moon, 1934, directed by Roy William Neal. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films and the other episodes, and you can also find an appeals submission form. Uh, that's where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, or even suggestions. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday. We are hosted on SoundCloud and iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's calling itself now. Uh, But you can widely find us available on any podcast app through our RSS feed. We would love it if you'd give us a comment on SoundCloud or rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people see the show, and it lets us know what you think of the show. Mm -hmm. Another way you can help support us is just by telling a friend about us. We're kind of a niche show, so if you know someone who might be interested in a chronological look through the horror genre's history, uh, let them know about us. Yeah. What are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, next week we are watching Sex Maniac. Oh my god. It is Dwayne Esper's roadshow exploitation movie from sort of outside the Hollywood circle of influence. It's an educational film. How is it considered horror? I guess we'll see. Well, because it's a movie about a mad scientist who, like, is performing experiments on, like, naked women and nymphomaniacs. I see. It's a horror movie. It just gets away with showing stuff that you couldn't show in a movie back then by throwing in some educational aspects. Okay. Well, uh, we'll draw the blinds and (laughs) throw it on, and we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.